Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. So, said an uncle to a student of mine, you're getting a history degree, huh? When you graduate, you're going to get a job in a history store? The numbers show that the uncle's jab is winning. As friend of the podcast John Locke has demonstrated in an editorial in the Middle West Review, the number of history majors in U.S. colleges and universities has dropped by more than 50% since 2000. Departments have begun to shrink as a consequence of this, and that shrinkage shows no sign in many institutions of stopping until numbers of historians hit zero. It's hard not to believe that fueling this is the question of where are you ever going to use that history degree, or really any kind of liberal arts degree. Add to that the recent arrival of ChatGPT and SuperBing, AI programs that promise to write every term paper that any professor ever contemplated assigning, and there doesn't seem to be a point to the liberal arts. While we need to talk to John Locke about this crisis, today I'm talking with my old friend Brent Orell, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he specializes in, among other things, workforce and retraining programs and preparing youths for jobs. And of late, He's also been thinking a lot about the impact of artificial intelligence on work, labor, and vocation. He's been a guest on the podcast back in episode 169, and he has his own podcast, Hardly Working, which I recommend to you for all your labor, workforce, and vocation needs. Brent, hello. Hi, Al. How are you? So this is, uh, we've known each other now for uh, close maybe 25 years or more. Oh, it's more than that. Uh, <laughs> so we're just going to have a conversation. These are questions I've been wanting to ask you, especially yeah. about the artificial intelligence stuff yeah. recently, and we haven't talked about it. So I figured we'll talk. You've got some time in your busy schedule. You just released today was a rollout of a report on artificial intelligence from the United States Chamber of Commerce, which you were a part. So we'll hopefully we'll get to that. But I wanted to... Um, express some angst about the liberal arts. And I know that you have answers to some of this angst. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you realize this, but um, liberal arts are in big trouble. <laughs> I gave you so that we could get other numbers. Uh, it's actually much worse than this. The uh, Nathan Heller just wrote a, an article uh, a ways back, which of course everyone on, on uh, the Twitter hated and picked apart, but they're all wrong because they're fools. But he pointed out that the, from 2012 to the start of pandemic, the number of English majors on the campus at Arizona State University fell from 953 to 578. Um, I'm sure it's going to be much worse uh, since the pandemic is, is over. Um, I think I've said to you before that when I talk to colleagues in the English department for the last 10 or 14 years, I look into their eyes and I see they're losing the will to live. <laughs> um, and Heller uh, talks about this. He says that it's uh, there are four horsemen on the humanities horizon. This applies, I wish, only applied to the English departments, but applies to historians as well. Four horsemen. They're defunding, uh, recession, self-sabotage, and artificial intelligence. I happen to believe, call me crazy, that the self-sabotage is one of the biggest and nastiest horsemen. Uh, because I've seen a remarkable capacity for self-sabotage in, in department meetings. 
but we should, I think, talk to the uncle. This is actually, that was actually a true story. Mm. Uh, where are you going to work? A history store? Uh, what's the use of the humanities? Um, there are some people who insist that we just need the humanities because they're nice. That's the best reason. Eric Adler, he's been on the program. The hum humanities make us better. I agree with that. But that uncle doesn't want to hear that. And we need to say something to that uncle other than kicking him in the teeth. So, yeah, uh, what, 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 what's the point for the liberal arts from your perspective in workforce development? Okay. So let's just be very uh, cold eyed about this and, sure. and respond to that question, um, which is a question that I faced when I was making decisions about my undergrad it not quite in that form. Nobody asked me if I was working and going to go work for the history store, but they did ask me questions like, so what are you going to do with that? Classic. With the emphasis on that as if that was some sort of um, stinking carcass that somebody had left <laughs> in the middle of the floor that needed to be disposed of. And, um, and, and that's a perennial uh, that's a, that's a perennial. That's a hearty, hearty perennial. And it's a hardy perennial because Americans are, in my view, uh, pragmatic and overly so, practical and overly so <laughs> when they think about education. You know, we need to see, in order to justify any investment in any kind of education, people often want to see uh, the direct, straight, pathway, linear, no curves whatsoever between the education and the economic outcome. Mm -hmm. And um, as long as that paradigm reigns, that question is going to be in place. I don't think it's going to go. I don't think it's going away. Um, oh, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly it's not, going, it's go certainly away not going because away. that's who we are as a people. Mm -hmm. um, if you can't show me, you know, show me the money, or I'm showing you or that idea the door. Um, uh, so, so that, I, I'm glad we've got that out of the way. Yeah. Because once when in a department meeting uh, at a Midwestern regional public university, when this came up, this question about a colleague who I love gave a very learned discussion of anti-intellectualism in American culture. <laughs> and and then the the the, the problem rested. Yep. That was it. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, that, so, that's so, an example of self-sabotage. So here, here's here's where we have here's where we have to go. And I've started talking about this uh, about questions as they relate to the future of work from the standpoint of uh, the idea that we are facing a workforce trilemma. Our workforce trilemma is made up of problems around skills technology, and people. People being the most important um, of those three factors because people, and, and, and it, because it's a trilemma, they interact with each other. So know? the people are the 50% of the three. I got it. Yeah, yeah. People are like the foundation of all economics, right? They create all the value. They, they do all the stuff. They make, uh, they make the money. That's, that's what people do. And so they are the absolute uh, fundament of a free market economy is, are, are our people. We're going to have a lot fewer people in the future um, than we've got right now and have had. Population growth is slowing. 
uh, our population's aging. Uh, we've gone from an average age of about 20 in 1960 to over 30 in uh, 2022, and that's uh, proceeding apace. Uh, in the last five years, this is an unbelievable number. In the last five years, we've added only 1.7 million people to our workforce. Between 2005, uh, 2007 and 2012, I think those are the, the dates, between that five-year period, we added over 11 million people. Our workforce is in huge trouble in terms of just generating the number of people that we need in order to keep it all going, which is one of the reasons I tell people don't worry about AI, uh, because it may be, in fact, the solution to one of our biggest problems, which is to spread our workforce more efficiently um, across all the things that need doing. Um, so don't worry about AI in that regard. Okay, so people are the challenge. That's the, the main challenge. Then technology and skills occupy the other two corners of the triangle. Technology, as we and, and this is the AI question, Technology interacts with skills. How does it interact? Well, it takes away, it's going to take away, it has taken away for centuries now, it, is, it has taken away the most routine tasks. Those are the things that are most easily automated. What it leaves behind are tasks that are much harder for technology to, to um automate, which are the human activities. The, uh, you know, the, when you go to the hospital, uh, there is no substitute for a good nurse um, who is going to help you through painful and, um, and uh, you know, procedures that re just require hands touching you all the time. All right. So uh, that's just an example. But that's very, very hard to automate. Um, it doesn't, anybody, anytime anybody tells you AI can't do that, just put an asterisk there and say yet. So always, you know, yet. I, I think that technology is going to continue to advance and we can't say that anything is permanently off the table. But for now, these kind of human, um, human skills that we need uh, in, the, in our workforce uh, are are largely not automatable. Um, so, so that's one component of the skill question. So we need, and and this is reflected in the um, the data when you talk to employers and you ask them what's missing in the workforce, they immediately go to a whole bunch of human skills. Uh, they go to uh, communication. They go to teamwork. They go to all sorts of things that involve people working with other people. That's the main thing that's on their mind. Um, they just don't, we don't have enough of that. So, uh, so we've got a, we've got a human being shortage. And within that, we've got a non-cognitive or soft skills shortage um, that is not getting any better. It's getting worse. So the question is, how do you build up non-cognitive skills? Well, I would argue that one of the ways that we build up non-cognitive skills in the workforce is through 
non-technical forms of education, um, uh, non-technical forms of training, non-technical forms of uh, developing human beings. Uh, And that's where there's kind of an underappreciation for skills as they relate to undergraduate education, all right? We think about undergraduate education typically from the standpoint of content. What am I learning Mm -hmm. uh, to go to work in the history store, right? Mm -hmm. I'm learning history. What are you going to do with that history? That's the wrong question. The question that we need from a workforce standpoint is what happens in undergraduate education that has a um, application uh, in the skills domain to um, uh, to the workforce. So, uh, and, and that's a question that just never gets asked. What are the skills that you're learning while you're studying history or art or English or any of the humanities or even the social science, sciences? What are the skills that you're picking up, not just the content? And so that's the question, that's the answer to the uncle's question is, I love you know, I love history. But you know what else I'm learning? Mm-hmm. I'm learning how to read carefully. I'm learning how to think critically. Mm-hmm. I am learning about what human beings have done in the past in addressing problems that are different, but in many ways the same as the problems that we're experiencing mm-hmm. today. All of that I'm going to bring in to the workforce. And that's the kind of thing that employers really want. But do they? Do they really want it? I, I the um, according to what they say. I mean, yeah. But, but this is. I, I mean, I've heard you talk to other people, and they push back. They say, "Well, you know, employers don't really want that, do they?" I mean, they want. They just want someone who you know can show up on time and has a good work ethic. That's um, that's that's a soft skill. That's what I'm talking about. That's a non-cognitive skill. They want somebody who can show up on time, and pass a drug test. Yeah. Uh, and then they also want people who can, can write and think critically and collaborate. Basically, people who have the skills to get along with other people. Mm-hmm. What you're suggesting also is, is a question as old as Plato and, Conf- and Confucius. Uh, who are you going to become having learned these things? Yeah, I mean, so this is, that's not much of a, a response to the uncle, I don't think. Um Uncle, the uncle's not interested in that. Uh, the uncle's interested in outcomes, uh, not in process, and not in um, uh, tangible outcomes, and not not necessarily in questions of character. Um, and that's one of the big problems, actually, in the business community uh, and in in the world of business, is that we kind of expect people just to show up formed in these ways. Um, you know, it's like, I, I shouldn't have to worry about that. That That's somebody else's job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to argue with that. I mean, I, I don't think that that's exactly, that is the necessarily the job of business to develop those skills, but it is a job of business to appreciate and value those skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and then to, you know, um, seek to cultivate them 
as well within the, within the way that they do their own business. Um, I wrote a report last year called Dignity at Work, and it focuses a lot on this of, you know, if businesses want to retain talented people, then they need to focus on development of those people. And this is, this is part of that development um, is, you know, when somebody comes in your door, you're recognizing them as a human being and not just as a means of production. Uh, and uh, in recognizing that they are human beings, you establish limits around what you can ask them to do. You, uh, you, you seek to find out what their core talents and skills and abilities are, and then figure out how to help those develop both for their sake and for your sake as a businessman or business person, I should say. Um, so there's, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, we, we can't escape the, the innately social nature of work. Work uh, places huge social demands on us. It, it imparts... Um, it imparts a lot of social benefit um, to us. And so we need to kind of remember that we're not dealing with widgets when we're dealing with people. We're, we're dealing with human beings that, that, are, um, that are packages of, of all kinds of attributes that need to be recognized. Well, I, I wanted to go through uh, before we get to artificial intelligence. Yeah, I, I wanted to go through some stuff with you. This is there's a group called Humanities Works. I say a group; it's three people, and they've been three professors who've been trying to address common myths, what they believe are myths in the humanities, and they they do uh, provide footnotes even because they're good humanities professors. They provide footnotes for these posters that they've generated um, to counteract myths. So I'm going to fire the myths at you: five myths, and you sight unseen, are going to be able to respond and say whether, whether you think that this is a myth or not. So this, I'm very excited about A this. lightning round. It's a lightning round. It's not that lightning. I don't think it's going to be that lightning. But um, <laughs> first myth, humanities majors earn lower salaries and find less rewarding work than majors in STEM fields. Um, well, there's two ways of, of looking at that question. Um, do we believe that that? STEM, people who graduate with STEM degrees are more satisfied. And the answer to that from the data seems to suggest that they aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, people who um, go into STEM occupations after about 10 years um, face the same, or and, and in some ways I think worse problems around burnout and discouragement uh, than, than other workers who don't go into those fields. I think that that is in large part a uh, a misallocation of skill. You know, people take on those jobs because they they've been promised. They, the uncle has told them that this is the golden ticket. You know, you do this, you'll never have to worry again. Really, we should spend some time talking to all of the computer science scientists who've been laid off in the last three months. Um, as uh, at, you know, as uh, the, the tech industry has experienced this dramatic slowdown, you know, people have, uh, you know, are not necessarily happier um, in those jobs. Uh, and, uh, and, they, and they experience burnout in the same way that everybody else does and maybe a little bit worse. So I'm not sure that, um, that, you're, that you're better off. You're only better off in those jobs if you are built for those jobs. And that's our problem, is that we start with 
the economic outcome and we ask what kind of economic outcome do we want rather than starting with the person and saying what are your durable interests what what is self what will be self-sustaining for you as a career something that you can swing your legs out of bed in the morning and not dread having to go do um and because we don't ask that question, then we get 10 years into our careers. A lot of us get 10 years into our careers and say, you know, I've got another 30, 40 years of this and I'm just not, I'm not into it. Um, uh, and that's where midlife crisis comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of myths that sort of contradict each other. Again, if, if you can't, yeah, if this is, you see, see how you want to tackle these. Uh, the reason humanities majors have low unemployment is because they're desperate for work and will take anything they can get. This is, you know, <laughs> would you like fries with that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, uh, I think, uh, I think the reason that I, I, uh, I don't know that that's necessarily true of humanities majors that they do have low unemployment because they're desperate for work. I think that they find their they find their way into the cracks and crevices of the American economy, or they find uh, niches where they can uh, not just survive, but do well. Um, And it reminds me of, you know, sort of the interactions that I've had with people at St. John's College down in Annapolis, where when I asked the career, um, you know, it's it's a liberal arts, great books program. And I asked the career placement person, like, what, what's been the biggest surprise for you and uh, in terms of where Johnny's go? And she said, it's the number of them that wind up in the IT sector. Um, well, why is that? And, and uh, she said, well, they don't go in as coders. They go in as systems architects because they have, uh, they built a, uh, a capacity of imagination I think that allows them to assess problems and to, and to then imagine solutions that reach from end to end rather than getting too narrowly focused on, uh, on the, the challenge, the immediate challenge at hand. So uh, in my view, like that kind of broad education is so vital for the future uh, in terms of work because it allows you to connect uh, across the silos of information um, and and be someone who can synthesize um, a bunch of different uh, ideas and different inputs and think critically and creatively. So that's how I would I would say it is that you may be an anthropology major, but are you really going to be an anthropologist or are you building certain skills that uh, are of value in a high tech economy? And there is kind of this paradox, as I, we talked about before, that as uh, technical skills grow, um, there's this paradoxical function where they uh, or a technology grows this this paradoxical function of uh, the humane skills becoming more valuable. And that's, that's an empirical question. It's not a, um, it's not a, a supposition. This is, the, this is where we're seeing the growth um, in the economy. 
Um, there's a lot of chatter, yeah. If including a New York Fed report, uh, so that's not really chatter. That's like authoritative economic pronouncements, uh, <laughs> sort of highlighting under in terms. Mm, highlighting underemployment amongst college grads, and so that leads to very. It, so the next myth doesn't then seem to be a myth at all that humanities majors struggle to find jobs because if a third of all college grads are struggling to find jobs, obviously humanities majors must be struggling to find jobs. I guess I'm more interested in the, in this question of um, have we reached sort of the limit of how valuable a college degree is? Um, is, has, have, have we, are too many people have gone to college. It's a very familiar thing. This, you used to hear this from the left. Now you hear it from the certain at the right. It's, it, it's now a sort of, it goes back and forth. Um, I suspect it has as much to do with um, a very 21st century uh, failure, perceived failure of institutions as it does anything else. So uh, what's, what's the truth of that? I, I, I really, I really don't like the framing of the question. Have too many people gone to college? I think that's kind of inarguable. I think that we have sent too many people to college. Um, uh, but I think it's, it, even though that's, I, I agree with that proposition, I think it's still the wrong question to be asking. The right question to be asking is what kind of education does any individual, uh, would any individual benefit the most from? Um, we need a different approach to kind of um, the way that we channel and direct and try to support students in making decisions about post-secondary education. Um, you cannot in this country, in this day and age, for the most part, there will be exceptions to every rule, but on average, you can't support a family on a high school degree. It just doesn't work uh, anymore. And it hasn't worked for a long time. And so we've substituted a college degree for the high school degree, and that work has worked for a while. Uh, and, um, and so we said, you know, we went, the, the pendulum's always swinging here. We went, everybody go to college, get your degree. You know, that was, the, that was the message. And now the pendulum's swinging back of too many people in college. Don't go to college. Just, you know, get, become a plumber, become a, you know, an electrician as if, as if there were that many plumbers and electricians around. Right, these are hard jobs that require a lot of skill. Yeah, people, and there aren't that many people who can do them. I know? hear, yeah, I hear my people often cite my friend Matt Crawford, his book Shop Class is Soulcraft, to show that you don't have to go to college to do something hard. Yeah, but Matt didn't say, <laughs> Matt didn't say that it was easy to do electric. I mean, in fact, that's exactly Matt's point. Yeah. When you look at like an electric junction box and say a, a major. Uh, high rise, you see something that's cognitively difficult in terms of 3D spatial reasoning for someone to put together. You know, yeah. it's hard to rewire an 1838 house. I just watched someone do it, you know, at the house I grew up. It requires a great deal of, yeah. you know, thinking. It requires, I mean, it's hard. It, it, it's it hard. It's a genius. It requires yes. genius to do that work. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, it, clearly, there are probably more people who could do that work than are doing that work. There may be people who would be happier doing that work. But that's the question that we need to be asking of individuals is, what are you bent toward? 
You know, are you bent toward four-year college degrees of some sort? Are you bent toward more practical work? Because we're in dire need of people who can do that work. But again, you can get just as burned out being a plumber if you don't want to be a plumber as you can being a computer scientist if you don't want to be a computer scientist. Mm -hmm. And we just are not used to thinking in these terms of, you know, let's step back. Let's ask a different question um, in terms of what are what are these durable interests that you have? What are the what's the thing that you, I always ask people? Like, what's the thing you would do if you were a trust fund baby? You know, you still want to be employed, you still want to work, but you got a trust fund, and you don't have to think about the economics. What would you do? You know, what are you really interested in? Um, now they aren't trust fund babies, so they've got to think about the market, right? They've got to think about how to align their interests to the market. And uh, and that, that all needs to happen, but the preliminary question is, how are you put together as a human being? What's the kind of work that you would like to do? And then how do we align that to where the market is and what kinds of needs um, uh, people are paying for in the market? Um, and I just think that's a much more healthier, more productive way to go about this. Okay. Uh, we could, uh, I think we've covered uh, as much as I wanted to cover about this. Um, I'm still scared, but uh, it's okay. It's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it is. Well, let's talk about something really terrifying, okay. which is AI going, is going to write for me. Um, so you just, this very morning, at yeah. nine, Ak Emma, you released this. We we're part of a press conference releasing this report on artificial intelligence. I know that you've been swanning around to various <laughs> places: London, you know, London, England, Palo Alto, you know, You're Youngstown, Ohio, so gorgeous right. places like that. Um, but <laughs> what, what, what has this all this been about? Because you've been very cryptic about mm. what this was about and, yeah. and your explorations in artificial intelligence. And, and is it really a thing? Cause I still don't, I'm not really sure. I, I believe in artificial intelligence. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, is it a thing? Yes. It's a thing. Um, I really feel like in the last two months we made, we may look back at the October to January period uh, of late 2022 and early 2023 as the moment that the AI atoms split. Mm. It's um, going to be, I was thinking about, it. it's going to be like the uh, Edison's first display at Menlo Park when he had it all lit up with the incandescent light bulbs and people thought, oh yeah, this could be a thing. This could this really could, work. This could be a thing. There, yeah. there, it, it wasn't as if people hadn't been talking about light bulbs. People made lots of different types of light bulbs. And all of a sudden they saw one place, a guy had made a lot of them and was powering them and they worked. And this is amazing. <laughs> and it was complete. it's completely transformed uh life because it's it's it ended the tyranny of darkness and allowed us to extend our working lives into you know parts of the day that you know was not, uh, not and, possible and then it also necessarily led to electrical generation which was even bigger mm -hmm. so yeah yeah so is ai a thing yes ai is definitely a thing i think it always needs to be kept in mind that we have this incredible labor shortage, which we may get a recession and it may go away partially or, you know, uh, but 
the fundamental reality that we're facing is we don't have enough people. And I think that AI is going to be very, very helpful in extending the capacity of people to do more things. That's been the history. Um, you know, we get uh, tech, technology, automation, uh, expands the economy, it increases productivity, it raises income, it creates new demand to replace uh, old demand or to expand on old demand, and everybody does better. All right, so I'm not afraid of it. I th and, and I don't think, even if, even if some of the more dire concerns uh, uh, were, or parts of them come true, uh, I still think that overall it's going to be a huge uh, boost um, to the global economy and to our economy. Uh, in the next five years, it's supposed to add $13 trillion worth of value um, uh, from, from AI. That's as large as the entire economy of China. Uh, so we are talking about, and that's year after year after year, right? That's not just one 13 trillion, that's 13 trillion as far as the eye can see and growing. So I, I, I'm, I'm, more, I'm much more, having studied this for the last few years, I'm much more optimistic and hopeful, um, about the potential benefits of AI. Now, as I said this morning at the event, in terms of labor and work and jobs, uh, I didn't get a laugh for this joke, but I, I felt like it deserved one, which was... I'm, I'm primed. It's, it's, it's not going to be universally good for every worker everywhere all the time. And that was an homage to the, to the leading film in this year's Oscar race. Uh, and maybe that's why nobody got that. I ain't get, um, I, ain't, I, ain't get, I but, guess I, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the movie is... Everything all at once, everywhere, or all the time. Yeah, something something like that. Uh, it's not going to be a universal good. It's going to create an enormous amount of stress on people because it's going to raise the stakes um, around their education and training. It's going to require them to learn new things, which we all know how you know painful that is to have to learn new stuff. Uh, um, uh, and it's going to put some. It's going to eliminate some jobs. I don't think there's any any doubt about that. I just think it's going to create a whole bunch more on the other end. So, I guess I should go back for people that haven't been paying attention. What happened that since October to February? I'm that sorry. Was, yeah, was that like, was, the, it was like that, that was. This then, is the this is the arrival of Chat GPT and then and, and, the, and Neo Bing, and Neo Bing, yeah. and all of the new tools um, that are just proliferating, like kudzu um like the, there's there, there are programs in case you're not aware of it and they're a lot of fun where you can have things drawn for you yeah um you it's know drawn for you written for you diagram for you uh i need a table you can tell an ai i need a, i need a table that shows me uh the statistical data you know just i need that statistical data in a table and it will create a table for you you know i've been using this in my own work um, and uh, the the new Bing, uh, Neo Bing, um, and it is such a time saver uh, in terms of research. Um, what have, what have, what have you been doing? What have you been doing with it? I need I need to I need to be doing well, this. Uh, <clears throat> you'll love this one. I've been uh, I've actually been <clears throat> doing some research on anti-Semitism, uh -huh. uh, and. Uh, 
Neo Bing gets very nervous after a few questions about anti-Semitism and wants to change the subject uh, because, of course, this is exactly you know is that is that the point where it tells you that it loves you and wants you to run away with it <laughs> and and I can't talk anymore about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but it you know tell me uh, give me the uh, one of the queries was show me the most recent public opinion survey data on anti-Semitism in the United States and internationally. It can do that. And it will spit out. It did spit out um, a complete summaries of the most important data as it relates to attitudes about anti-Semitism in the U S and around the world. Um, now before new Bing, I would have to use that terrible Google machine uh, and and sort through a bunch of reports and do a lot more reading uh, in order to get to the nuggets of information that I needed. This just boils it down and gives me what I need. The new Bing, unlike ChatGPT3, also gives you uh, the underlying references. Oh, that's uh, that's what I was going to ask you because I I played around ChatGPT uh, and it was it was impressive. Mm-hmm. But I was suspicious um, mm-hmm. because I, I just asked, what was Thomas Carlyle's big idea? I wanted to ask about something I don't know much about. Yeah. And so, and I wanted to give something that was kind of vague, but specific. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. boom, I had, you know, I had basically the Wikipedia article on Thomas Carlyle's great man theory of history. I, uh, I actually had the people from Bing reach out to me the other day from Microsoft because they found a tweet that I had put out where I said, uh, I, exp- I this was the setup. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, my son uh, was sick and he wasn't mm-hmm. going to go to school, but it was a new school and I didn't have the attendance line number. I did have access to New Bing. With no confidence whatsoever, I asked New Bing to give me the attendance line number for the Davis Career Center in Fairfax County. Mm-hmm. And not only, and with no confidence that it would be able to answer that question. Not only did I get the answer, the correct number, here's the attendance line for the Davis Career Center in Falls Church. However, there's also an email that you can just send a note about attendance. And here's the email address. The answer that it gave me was better than the question that I asked. Um, and, (laughs) And that's the genius here, is that the AI is actually going deeper into the question than I intended mm-hmm. or expected and is pointing me toward additional resources. And that is true in most areas. It will give you prompts for additional inquiries. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, in a way, that's a lot less. I mean, it's not back when Siri was an independent app, um, which I had a, I, on an iPhone 3GS. That's how long ago that was. You could ask, you know, what's a Thai restaurant in Northwest Indiana? And it would tell you, and then it would ask if you wanted to make a reservation. And it would it would email that. And that was that was pretty impressive. But what this reminds me of, it's really interesting. I, have you have you seen that um there's a, a back when after John Scully had stabbed Steve Jobs in the back and kicked him out the door of, of Apple, um, not that he was wrong. But he was, but he was obsessed with many things. But he was was looking for something to do next, and he came up with this idea. It was only an idea for the Knowledge Navigator, and you can find the the video on web. And the people who did Siri 
back in 2010, 2011. They said how influential that was to them. But it's amazing. Knowledge Navigator, which, I mean, it's science fiction-y. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, but it was good science fiction because it was, it was very limited. It wasn't crazy. And it, it's basically imagining new Bing. I mean, where you're talking to your tablet, it was the, it was the future iPad, you know, only was like literally like a three ring binder folded out and you're asking it questions and it's coming up with citations and references and stuff like that. It's a professor working on a lecture. So, um, and it, it works exactly like you're describing. It's like anticipate. You might want to also think about, yeah, it's exactly that yeah. sort of thing. And so it's just like, I, uh, it has made me just having access to new Bing has, uh, probably added 20 to 30% to my productivity in terms of hmm. my ability to do the, the things that I need to do. And this is only the beginning, right? That's right. This it's is, only going to get better. It's only going to get better and not just better, but exponentially better. Um, we used to talk about Moore's law in terms of processing power, but now we've got a new kind of exponential growth um, that I think is going to happen in these large language models um, that is partly related to processing power, but it's also related to the efficiency of um, the programs, the algorithms themselves. So, um and, and by the way, can I just say uh, that people have people have worried about. Um, I mean, there's an excellent article. I'll, I'll link to it uh, by um, find his, uh, Andrew Newman, an Inside Higher Education, a little essay about. Um, he's really looking. He's looking at AI and and uh, English lit. He points out that one of the directions this might go is is uh, it might take us to a um, at least in the classroom. We're going back to the pen. Uh, we're not going to be using the computer to fill online stuff out anymore. Now, I think that that could be problematic, but we'll get to that. Uh, but I, I, I was already there, even in 2016. I didn't really want my kids on the computer because it, it's too much trouble to put some of their stuff into uh, Google just to find plagiarism. But it's also, um, you know, a lot of, I mean, speaking from a historically thinking point of view, a lot of the, what are considered good essays, uh, term paper essays, are who and how. And those are uninteresting. Hmm. Um, I'll be really impressed and a little un, uneven, uh, scared when I start seeing more answers about why hmm. from uh, Neo Bing. I like calling hmm. it Neo Bing. It's very Matrix. Um, it, when they start saying why things happened or, 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 or assessing the rankings of you know, different things or possibilities, you know, when it has that sort of intuition. It's definitely in there already to a degree. Uh, And, and because these companies are deathly afraid of getting caught in the crossfire, the cultural crossfires over some of these issues, you know, you get on the, you get the kind of on the one hand, on the other hand. Yes. And responses, which is uh, a very good textbook, but also textbooks suck. As we've as we've often said on this podcast, yeah. so I mean, the, to so it, it it doesn't it kind of it's it's good that it's done this in some ways. I hope it's a shock to the system for some people because it's going to have to it's going to have to change the way that people think about assignments. Because um, bu- a lot of things are busy work assignments that people have been giving out. They are the they are the college equivalent of busy work, and so, that needed to stop anyway. 
So this links back to the where we started around the value of a four-year degree or, or education broadly mm-hmm. um, in that uh, one of the biggest challenges for the use of AI in these large language models is knowing how to ask questions. Yeah. Um, and then being able to put it into the language that the, the algorithm is, is tuned to. So that those are two different related but different things. You know, there's, you know, what, what am I interested in knowing? And then how do I ask the program uh, the question in the right way in order to get the best answer? I don't want to rely just on Bing to sort of prod me to ask more questions. I want to get better at asking questions. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly think that that is like this area where teaching people how to ask good questions and to think about how, how to ask questions is, is right at the center of humanities education. Um, that's certainly the way it is at St. John's. Where, like for instance, when they do their their uh, bio lab, where they dissect the frog, um, they're not allowed to start cutting on the frog until they know what question they're trying to answer. So you don't want to disturb you don't want to disturb the subject here until you have a, an idea of where you want to go uh, and what you're trying to find out. And I think there's I, I think that's definitely something that um, we really need to focus on with, with students um, throughout their education now is getting helping them to get better about asking questions. Because if you can ask good questions, these tools, these large language models are going to be absolutely fantastic. Um, and uh, if you're a moderate question uh, asker, uh, they won't be as, as good. So building up those skills, I think, is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's a lot more we could talk about yeah. in regards to that. I, I guess one, one thing I do want to ask about that. Um, so where are all these trillions of dollars going to be coming from in, in the economy? It's not just from helping Brent Orell do his job. Yeah. No, um, it's, it's it, I could imagine, uh, some people have talked about, uh, this, uh, lately, well, actually, I've quoted Jacques Barzun like three times already today in conversations, but I'll do it again. I think in a culture we deserve, he says, what do you mean? People, what do people mean when people aren't reading anymore? They read more than ever. It's just lots of the things they're reading are not worth re- not always worth reading. They're reading manuals. They're reading. There's, there's words everywhere to read, and people are confronted with them all the time. And I imagine it's exactly those sorts of things that artificial intelligence will excel at writing yeah right so um i had an answer to your question now sorry i ruined it ruined it all ask your question again um okay let me put this in what um you said that uh, some enormous number of trillions, oh, yes. the, the yes, size yes, of the yes, Chinese yes. economy every year, 13, 14 trillion a year, yeah. uh, starting in what, five years, yeah. uh, is going to be added by AI. It's not going to be because it's helping senior fellows at Washington think tanks to do research yeah. on anti-Semitism right. or what have you. Right. Um, 
where is that going to come where's from? this value coming from yeah so uh it, i think there's two stories on the value question first of all i i think that um this technology isn't just one thing it's a whole bunch of different things and it's going to interact with both existing technology and new stuff that's coming online and recombine into to the unknowns that we don't know about you know that that the unknown unknowns um, uh, that we're going to generate a whole bunch more value um, because we've got these new tools. Okay. So that's part of it. The second part of it, and the one that feels more threatening um, is that um, there are a lot of tasks in the economy that are being done by people right now that could probably be done more effectively and more efficiently by uh, AI. And there's a professor at the University of Rome, very good book on this. I wrote a review of that book. If you don't want to read the book, it's on Law and Liberty. Um, Brave New Technology, I think, is the, the name of the, the review. Um, but he talks about uh, disintermediation, um, that right now we've got a lot of people in the economy who serve a function of coordination and kind of pulling things together and scheduling and, you know, like AI may, it may step into that space and uh, create value by subtracting cost from the system into, from the economy. So that's the other way. So we've got value added, but we've also got costs foregone. And I think that those are, those are both going to contribute to that 13 trillion. So the HR department, you're saying the HR department might be in trouble. Uh, I'm not so sure about HR. Parts uh, of it. I mean, there's a Go ahead, say study it. that just came out three days ago from Princeton, which is kind of thin. It's not all that helpful, but it, it looks at, you know, sort of which uh, occupations and industries are most exposed to AI. Uh, the Unfortunately, the occupations that the study identifies are history teachers and and English teachers and things like that. But when you look at the industry codes, it's finance, it's uh, insurance, it's uh, law. It, you know, there's all, you know, people who have rarely in the history of humanity ever had to worry about being automated or industries that have really worried about automation um, are looking, according to the study, are looking at some pretty significant automation. So, so like something like legal Zoom is going to be much, much better now because of this. Yeah. I mean, there was an interesting story about the, this huge, largest uh, law firm in the UK uh, and its use of their, their, their tools called Harvey. Uh, and Harvey is doing a lot of the heavy lifting uh, now for this firm uh, in kind of basic legal research uh, and drafting of uh, basic documents. It's not unlike, you know, the, it's the growing presence of AI in coding. Mm -hmm. It's not that you're getting perfect documents but you're saving yourself just a whole lot of time right. and effort and it's a lot better than having basic a... stuff that you can then work with. So yeah. that's just the skill premium, you know, like the best attorneys are going to be able to do a ton more mediocre attorneys may have to go find something else. Paralegals do. are in trouble. Yeah. 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 Um, and when you bring on all these young attorneys and, 
you're having them t- carry around those things that a lot of that can be done by an AI. You won't need that many young mm-hmm. attorneys to winnow through to bring up to junior partner. And, and, senior and on partner. the coding side, when you look at who's losing their job, these are not the young people who are losing their jobs. Typically, it's typically the older ones who are expensive. They're mm-hmm. very good, but they're expensive. And so you can, maybe you can offload some of the, you know, higher cost employees mm-hmm. and work with a chat bot and a, and a younger programmer. Um, so we don't know. That's the thing. Anybody who tells you what is, this is what's going to happen, forget it. We don't know what's going to happen, but we can see some of the big pieces starting to move around. And, um, and that, that I think is a helpful way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, before we, uh, wrap up, we should talk about hardly working. Do you can do a plug for your podcast on this podcast. Uh, hardly working, uh, which is, um, you know, some people I've had even close relatives of mine have said they don't like the name of the podcast because it makes it sound like I'm not working. Well, yeah, uh, and you have your point. own. I'm very jealous that you have your own logo. And it's it's actually a drawing of you, <laughs> which could be done by an AI machine now. Which I didn't request. I don't know how that happened. With but your feet anyway, up, too. It's, uh, it was well thought of. Yeah. So, uh, no, it's about... You know, it echoes the themes that we've been talking about, which is what's really important in life is not the dollar signs, not the money that you earn, but the level of satisfaction that you have while you're working. So no matter how, no matter how, how many hours you have to work, it feels like you're hardly working Mm -hmm. because you have that innate satisfaction uh, of work. And so a lot of the podcast is devoted to that, devoted really more to the question of vocation. How do you find your, how do you find your calling? So uh, we should, before we finish, you're saying that people just don't want to find the best paying job. Uh, what they, are you, some, some kind it, of communists? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I was speaking to a group of interns yesterday on this topic and I said, we are, uh, in, in the evolutionary time scale. Um, our, our minds and bodies are still tuned to shortage. Um, and so we live in a moment to moment of trying to figure out how much I can grasp so that I don't have to worry about starving, but we don't live in an epoch of shortage. We live in an epoch of plenty. And so it, it, we are not well served, um, right now by our heritage, uh, our, our species heritage of needing to acquire as much as we possibly can um, because we don't know where our next meal is coming from. It's a $23 trillion economy. You're probably going to be able to find something to do that will, you know, you won't wind up on the street and you won't starve to death. So you've got your, our burden as modern humans is very different than our ancestors. And, um, I like making money and I enjoy what money does. I really do. So I'm not, I'm not saying money doesn't matter. It does, but it doesn't matter nearly as much as it used to. And uh, what really matters now uh, even more is whether we can find the thing to do that is best tuned to who we are as people. My guest today has been Brent Orell. He is a senior fellow 
at the American Enterprise Institute. And among other things, he hosts the podcast Hardly Working. Brent, thanks as always for talking with me. You bet. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 